Stay in your seat. I'm voting for Dukakis. Hmm. Well, maybe when you have children of your own and you embrace you can't afford them because half of your husband's paycheck goes to the federal government, you will uh, regret that. My husband's paycheck? No. Oh. Anyway, I'm not going to squeeze one out until I'm like 30. Will you still be working at the yarn barn? Because I hear that's a really great place to raise children. That's really funny. No, I think a year of partying is enough. You'll be going to Harvard next month. Oh, I haven't gotten yet. You honestly think Michael Dukakis will provide for this country till you're ready to squeeze one out? Yeah, I do. Hmm. Can I squeeze one out? Not till eighth grade. Excuse me. Bonnie, you're such a dick. <laughs> Whoa, Elizabeth. A little hostile there. Maybe you should be the one in therapy, then mom and dad can pay someone $200 an hour to listen to all your thoughts, so we don't have to. Okay. You want to tell mom and dad why you stopped taking your medication? You're such a fuck-ass. <laughs> what? Please. Did you just call me a fuck-ass? Elizabeth, that's enough. You can go suck a fuck! Oh, please tell me, Elizabeth, how exactly does one suck a fuck? <laughs> How exactly does one suck a fuck? Oh. Wow. I wonder. Maybe we should ask Brett Easton Ellis. I'm sure he's given some thought to it. This is Staff Only. The studio manager at The Humor and the Abject Podcast with your host, Sean J. Patrick Carney. Welcome to episode 20, you fuck-sucking screedlers. Can you believe that it's already October? What happened to summer? LOL. I don't care. Summer can suck a fuck. Bring me some spooky pumpkins and a corn maze. I want to see scarecrows terrorizing children and a ghost in every train station. Autumn in New York is an incredible time. All things die. All things become hollow. Whoa oh. Whoa oh. This day is so hollowed. This day is so hollowed. From here, to forever, it's will I will follow. I bet Bretty Stanellas hates the fall. Let's do the show. I'm Ira Glass. Welcome to Jackass. It's episode 20 of the Humor in the Abject podcast. I'm your host, Sean J. Patrick Carney. Episode 20 means that we are just 400 episodes away from episode number 420, where my guests will be all of the original members of the Cottonmouth Kings. Speaking of California, this week's guest is Mira Gonzalez out of Los Angeles. She's the author of the 2013 poetry collection, I Will Never Be Beautiful Enough to Make Us Beautiful Together, published by Sorry House, which was a finalist for the 2014 Believer Magazine's Poetry Award. In 2015, she and Taolin collaborated on Selected Tweets, which is a book of, you guessed it, selected tweets, but also visual art. 
Uh, Mira's been published in Moo Moo House, Hobart, Vice, a bunch of other places. Uh, she's extremely funny on Twitter. You should definitely follow her at Mira Gons. So without further ado, here's my conversation with the one and only Mira Gonzalez. Gonzalez, welcome to Humor in the Abject. Thank you. Um, how's Los Angeles today? It's good. It's like uh, the weather is mild, like it always is. Um, it's about the same. It's disgusting here. It's really hot. Oh, really? It's yeah, like a little bit hotter upset. here than it has been. We had like one week where it was like in the 60s, which was nice, but now it's like back to the 80s. Oh, it's probably 90. Five here, Fuck. and the humidity is like a hundred percent, and all the garbage is rotting oh, on the God. street. It's really exciting. The garbage is such a problem. It's it smells so bad. <laughs> it's pretty gross. Yeah. Um, how are your How are your pups? They're good. They're um they're chilling. My uh, fiance just took the littlest one out for a walk because he doesn't, or they both hate it when I uh, am talking to someone who isn't physically here. They get really angry. Um, I don't know why. <laughs> So uh, they're being weirdly quiet right now, which is good. And I'm, I'm hoping that stays that way. That's okay. Well, if they run in and they start being loud, that's not a problem. We're a, we're a dog-friendly podcast. Oh, here. that's good to hear. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, I want to be upfront with you. Um, the other night you posted that you were going to watch The Duke, mm-hmm. And I messaged you and I said that I would watch it too. Um, and you did cause it. Because I, I thought it would be funny to talk about it. I tried. <laughs> I tried to. I started it. But it was um, it was ex- it was extremely Australian. Yep. Um, but also Claire is in Oregon for two weeks for an artist residency, and mm-hmm. I got really worried that I would be um, like really scared <laughs> to bed if it was <laughs> if it was too scary. So I turned it off, and then I tried to watch it again last night, and I did the same thing. So. <laughs> That's fun. So you don't watch a lot of horror movies, huh? Um, I like like a like a taut psychological thriller, mm-hmm. but I was afraid that it was going to be really like a lot of guts, and um, that freaks me out. It wasn't like a ton of like gore. Mm. Uh, it, it was it was not great. It was not great. It was like really? a, it was a really um, the whole movie was like a really heavy handed metaphor uh, for like mourning the loss of this woman's husband. Uh-huh. Um, it ended up being like the Baba Duke was sort of like a metaphor for her like grieving and like psychosis as a result of grieving. Mm-hmm. And so it's like in the end, I mean, I, maybe I shouldn't spoil the end of the Baba Duke for people who haven't watched it, but it was like not. Well, you can because I'm going to say spoiler alert right now. So just use the app thing where you skip right. ahead like 30 seconds. But why? What happens at the end? Because I'm not going to watch it. Okay, so. <laughs> So at the end, basically, it's like the the Baba Duke is there, and the son is always like the Baba Duke's here, the Baba Duke's here, and the mom's yeah. like shut the fuck up, like there's no Baba Duke, and eventually the mom <laughs> is like going insane because she's not getting any sleep because the son keeps talking about the Baba Duke, and at the very then she gets like possessed by the Baba Duke, and there's this whole like scene where she's all crazy, and then at the very end, the Baba Duke doesn't go away, but it's it's in her basement, like just hanging out, and she like goes down with like, like a, a gamer. Yeah, like, like her like large gamer son is just in the basement, <laughs> and uh, she like goes down with like a bowl of worms, and then what? goes like she goes down with a bowl of like earthworms to give to the Babadook, uh-huh. and 
she like goes down and the Babadook like starts infesting her again. She's like, no, it's okay. It's okay. And then the Babadook like take the worms and, and goes away. And so it's supposed to be like, she's like still she's... grieving her husband, but she's like figured out how to like sort oh. of put it away and, and be okay on a daily basis, even though it's still there, like in the form okay. of Babadook. It was not, <laughs> it was not great. They, um, I like, cause they're Australian. They pronounce, it rhymes with book. They say Baba Duke. Yeah, I like and that. And I was like, no, that says Baba Duke. That's okay. <laughs> but I'm glad that the Baba Duke has become a queer icon. I think that's fantastic. Me too. It's the um, best part of the movie, I think. Also, I was talking with my buddy uh, yesterday about, I don't remember who was doing this, but somebody kept saying that Pennywise the Dancing Clown was also a queer icon and was the Baba Duke's uh, like, partner. <laughs> I saw that. Yeah, yeah. And, all, and these alt-right people were getting super upset. And they're like, <laughs> Pennywise isn't gay. And it's like, I mean, Pennywise was... It, it is gender neutral. You don't know what. Yeah. Also, Pennywise. did you see the original Tim Curry version? Because I feel like that yeah. might explain a few things to them. <laughs> <laughs> um, <clears throat> okay, we don't have to talk about the Bubba Duke anymore. <laughs> um, uh, I was reading a, an interview that you did, um, I guess it was about a year ago, with the Creative Independent. Mm -hmm. And in it, you said that you started writing around the time that Twitter became popular. But do you mean that you, like, actually started writing as a practice or you started putting yourself out there at that time? I guess I mean that I started putting myself out there at that time. Um, and uh, more around the time that I got Twitter, I guess like when Twitter got popular, like for my group of friends, which was maybe yeah. like 2009 ish. Um, but That's I've been writing for me. like a long time before that. <laughs> really? I don't think I joined until 2012. Oh yeah. I've, I've been on there for a long, when I was like a senior in high school, um, my friends all had Twitter accounts and I thought it was really stupid. And then, uh, <laughs> my friends like made one for me and I was like, okay, fine. And like I'll tweet. And at first I did like ironically, and then I got like into it and we were all into it. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> um, what are some, uh, what are some must follow accounts for listeners that you would recommend? Um, let's see. Oh, there's so many. I would recommend to share zone. If anyone has yeah. ever seen that, uh, that's did a really I, good did one. I wait. Did you see the tweet that I did about the share zone when um, I was in the shower and Claire came into the bathroom apropos of nothing to tell me that she thought the share zone was for boys? <laughs> wait, like she thought that like it well, was she like just, not, <laughs> No, she was just like, mean. no, she was like, th this is like clearly for boys. <laughs> like the share zone is... <laughs> I mean, she's definitely right, I guess, to a degree, right? Like, there's, like, boy, like, like skeletons and sort yeah. of, like, like 12-year-old skater-type imagery, yeah. you know? Like, something to, like... But that's, like, the point of it. Is that's why it's yeah. funny. It's because it's, like, stuff that, like, boys would put on their MySpace in middle school or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, the share zone. Um, any other ones? And if they occur to you throughout the episode, I'm sorry to put you on the spot. You can also just shout people out as you remember yeah. them. Yeah. What is the... Uh, I bet you know this Twitter account, but the name is escaping me. I want to call it like haunted image, cursed images, cursed images, cursed images is very good. It's just yeah, yeah. Uh, like pictures that people find online that are weird for one way or another. And yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, I highly recommend it. That's a very good one. Um, just devastatingly brutal. Things. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Well, you don't have to keep listing off accounts, but if any occur to you, please let people know. Cause I'd like yeah. to give. I know there's more I, that I like enjoy. I'm on Twitter so often, but uh, they're escaping <laughs> me right now. <laughs> um, so your book, uh, I Will Never Be Beautiful Enough to Make Us Beautiful Together, came out four years ago. Is that correct? Yeah, I think so. 2013. Yeah, that's a bit of time. And yeah. I was curious, um, 
because I like as an artist or a writer, I look back on stuff from like four years ago. And sometimes I feel like I'm like reading somebody else's work almost. Like yeah. it's just, maybe I'm, I've just changed. I'm a different person. I'm curious if you feel like that was a, cause that's also, you wrote it at like, you were like 21 or something. A 20. Yeah. 20. Yeah. So that's like a really formative time. And I'm curious totally. if when you look back on it, if it's sort of like, Oh, I'm kind of looking at a different person than I am today. Yeah, I, I mean, I do feel that way, definitely. I don't know if I would say different person necessarily, but I would say like a person who's greatly improved from what I was <laughs> when I wrote that, um, or at least like become much more grown up or so. You know, I mean, I, a lot of the poems written in it were, I think I wrote them between ages like 18 and 20, um, which mm -hmm. was like a very like turbulent emotional time for me. Um, and so as a result of that, uh, the poems in the book reflect it. And I don't dislike the poems when I look back at them, actually. I, I sort of um, am able to look back at them and it sort of reminds me of the state that I was in. And I'm almost proud of myself for being able to like express those feelings in a book in a way that I still yeah. view as effective. Um, but it definitely... I, I definitely was a different person. Like it was different. Uh, my environment was different. My friends were different. It was like, a. it's definitely like a specific time capsule of a very, very formative years of my life. Sure. Yeah. I, the thing that is, I think really holds up with the book and the, and the poems is the sense of humor though is pretty mature. Like the, oh. <laughs> the, the turns of phrases and things. I mean, it's finding finding humor in places that typically you don't associate with somebody who's at that kind of formative age, maybe necessarily yeah. like getting to that place or something. Um, and I was just curious if you have reference points for where your sense of humor comes from, or if it just kind of occurred naturally. Um, I mean, I think that like my, my mom and I have a similar sense of humor in terms of like, taking dark things and making them funny. Like that was sort of always, I'm very close to my mom. She had me really young. Um, and she's an artist too. Is that right? Yeah. She's a visual artist. Um, yeah. yeah. And I guess like I sort of grew up learning to cope with bad feelings, like through humor. Like it was, uh, just another way to be able to deal with what I was feeling. And I think it was also maybe the result of just kind of like a dark childhood, like just like struggling when I was really little. Um, and uh -huh. like being like, I think that like when I was, you know, ages four through 11 was like the, the most depressed I've ever been probably. Um, really? Yeah, I, I do feel mine, that way. Mine came on, mine came on around my Saturn return. I was like, 20, <laughs> I was like 27. When I got yeah. With... I mean, I still have time, you know, I could get more depressed. Who knows? But, um, <laughs> You know, I think like coming out of that and then, you know, becoming a teenager and sort of finding friends who who were the same as me and and getting, you know, bullied less and, and all of that. It was sort of like you laugh or you cry kind of situation where I, I look yeah, back on yeah. on my childhood and it was sort of like, well, yeah, that was all fucked up. But like uh, the one thing I can do with it is sort of make it funny. And that was sort of like a way for me to, I guess, reclaim it and to sort of feel like I had some semblance of control over it um to sort of feel like well you know i can i can't change what happens but i can reframe past events in a different way that'll make me feel like less of a victim and i think that's sort of been what i do with writing whether it's humorous or not humorous i think the reason that i've written for so long is not only to 
like confirm that what I'm experiencing is like real and happening, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, to sort of reclaim how I feel about past events, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it seems like too to, um, to be able to collect your thoughts or sort of codify what you're feeling and put it into written form and then put it out into the world is mm-hmm. kind of a, um, a way of making peace with those things. Um, yeah. Almost like giving the Babadook the worms. <laughs> yeah, but, right. <laughs> no, but, uh, <clears throat> but I feel like that's a... I I think artists, um, writers, comedians, all kinds of people, musicians, that's like the thing, right? Is you right. you make something out of it and you put it out. And while you always carry it with you, maybe it exercises um, some minor demons. Just, you yeah. know, you kind of, you like conf- it, you actually confront them instead yeah. of. Right, exactly. And I, I know that like, you know, growing up, I, I read a lot. It was, I didn't really grow up with um, television because my parents are like crazy hippies. Um, <laughs> and so I ended up uh, reading a lot of books just for entertainment. Um, and one of the things that I read that was really formative for me was David Sedaris, which I know is like, so everyone loves David Sedaris, obviously. No, that's, I, the first time that I read that, that was like, that was like a game changer. No joke. Yeah. I mean, I, it's like an obvious person or whatever, only right. because like sometimes things are popular because they just don't suck. Yeah. Right. You know, like <laughs> yeah, the reason, the reason a lot of people like David Sedaris is because he's a great fucking writer. Yeah, he is. He's an amazing and writer. And he's hilarious. Yeah. And he's like the perfect example of taking like a life that's like really fucked up and crazy and like making uh-huh. it into something that is so funny and so like positive for the experience yeah. of the reader. That's like, that's like a skill that's, um, I strive for, you know, like yeah. that's, he's really, I think seeing the way that he was able to sort of take his like life experiences, which often were much worse than mine, much more difficult and make them into something that is so objectively hilarious. Even if you don't have a dark sense of humor, um, right. that was yeah. really inspiring to me. And I think, yeah. Oh man. And that's, I mean, I know this sounds like, uh, now I'm going to say a cliche, but I think it's the first his writing was the first book that I ever like laughed out loud while yeah, I was reading. Like I think, I think same. somebody gave me is probably, you know, my gateway was probably me talk pretty one day or something. Yeah. And somebody gave me that and I was like reading it on a plane and I was just like, I had to stop reading it because yeah. it was being annoying. <laughs> so I was yeah, laughing. no, it's amazing. And like, you know, growing up, it was like, I read, I read a lot, you know, but I was like, yeah. uh, like I said, I was, depressed so I read like a lot of like teenage emotional shit like I really loved the outsiders I read the outsiders like a million times and like you know uh, stuff like that it was a rare for me to find a book that I didn't feel was like that was fun that was actually funny you know that I didn't feel like was pandering to my age demographic or my gender or anything like that and that was just outright funny um wasn't just, trying too hard to be funny. It wasn't whatever. It was just naturally funny. I, I feel like I had a very similar experience to you with David Sedaris. It was like my first experience of real comedy in the form of a book. Yeah. Or or a way to, like you said, to process uh, the things that are pretty uncomfortable or possibly right. traumatic and turn them into a thing where it becomes a, a way for the reader to, e- even if it's not Sedaris's intention for the reader to kind of think that way about their own experiences in their yeah. own life and I, I think it I think it makes people funnier to read mm-hmm. him <laughs> in a right way. because it sort of gives you like another I, I think a lot of people don't even realize that 
they have the option of turning their difficult or traumatic experiences into comedy. You know, like that's just not a lot of people's first thing that they do. And a lot of people don't even realize that that's possible until you see someone like David Sedaris do it. And then you're like, oh, I see. This is like one way to cope with what I've gone through. Yeah, yeah. That's, I think I grew up Irish Catholic. So that was just sort of the name of the game. Right. You just like shove it down inside or make fun of it. Yeah, like you right, have to right. do one or, or, or go have a beer about it and fight your friend. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I feel like I grew up in a similar environment despite not being Irish Catholic. I, I'm a Mexican Jew, which I feel like is, uh, they have similar there's, reactions. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of, you've got the Jewish self-loathing and yep. then the Mexican Catholic guilt that is yep. very similar to Irish Catholic Exactly. Guilt. That sort of ends with like, well, like, let's like complain and get into a yelling, screaming fight or just like drink and not talk about it. Like, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wait, have you ever ever read um uh wayne kestenbaum's book humiliation i don't think so i feel like you would dig that it's oh, like okay. a it's like an afternoon read it's really fun oh and sweet i'm gonna read that they're just like it remind. i feel like the style of writing would be something that um i mean i don't know i don't want to be prescriptive at all but that maybe you would dig based on your work just because it's like they're like vignettes mm-hmm. this whole book of just horrifyingly humiliating things that happened to him oh, yeah, that or people around him growing up and it's like you just read it and it's just like a lit i mean you can jump in anywhere in the book it's yeah. not linear and it's oh that so, sounds great tell me again what it's called oh it's wayne kestenbaum mm-hmm. and it's uh humiliation okay book, great and it's like one of my favorites That's, um i'm gonna get that but speaking of sort of um vignette style writing uh i wanted to talk about selected tweets mm-hmm. and how that how that book collaboration came about? Um, let's see. How did that collaboration come about? Well, I've known Tao for a long time. Um, and it's Tao Lin, right? Tao Lin, yeah. We're yeah. Um, good friends. And we sort of met through Twitter. Um, he, the way that we met was he found my Twitter account and he liked it and um, emailed me saying that he wanted to edit a selection of it to put on his publishing house, Moo Moo House. Uh Um, and so the way that the book itself came about was I was contacted by Elizabeth Allen, who is, um, who runs, uh, Hobart, um, which is like a a literary magazine. And then they have a division that's for books that's called short flight, long drive. Um, she contacted me saying that she wanted, uh, to publish a book of my tweets put together. Um, originally it was going to be a flip book. So it was just going to be like a couple of pages of my favorite tweets. Um, and then, uh, pretty quickly, it sort of like expanded. I realized that there was like a lot of content there that could be used. Um, and then I can't remember if it was me or her who had the idea that um, that it could be a collaborative book between me and Tao. But uh, one of us had that idea and emailed Tao and he was immediately down. And that sounded good. And originally, we were going to edit each other's tweets. We were going to like, I was going to go through his tweets and edit them. He was going to go through mine. But we just sort of realized doing that, that like we both had a very specific idea of how we wanted our tweets edited and, and the sort of. Do you mean by edited, do you mean you change the language within the tweet or you mean like editing, which, which ones you were selecting? Which ones we were selecting okay. mostly. Yeah. Um, you I weren't like changing the structure. The yeah, tweet. no, I did like, um, so in my half of the book, there are, I believe three Twitter accounts. Um, the first one is my main Twitter account. And in that one, I did a little bit of editing for grammar. Um, but then the second Twitter account, uh, was my unedited account, which I didn't edit at all and just sort of left all the spelling errors or whatever was in the original uh-huh. tweets because that was like the point of the account. Um, but when I say editing, I mean like selecting individual tweets to put in the sure. book in what order. Um, 
And we just sort of realized that each of our Twitter accounts tells like a specific narrative that we would have a hard time pointing out in the other person's Twitter account, um, but could easily point out in our own. So we ended up deciding to edit the accounts uh, ourselves, our own accounts. And then we illustrated um, each other's sides of the book. So I have illustrations in Tao's side and then Tao's illustrations in my side. Nice. Yeah, that's, um, I mean, I think it's, a fascinating way to go about producing a book because it sort of presents an argument too, which is that that Twitter is writing. And I have a lot of friends who I think, you know, believe that pretty firmly, but I think there's a lot of people who also don't take it seriously yeah. at all. But it's like, there's something about it that's addictive and funny and its restraints require you to actually, mm-hmm. to be good at it. Yeah, totally. You have to, it's hard. Yeah. The editing is, is, um, I think it's really improved me as a writer, honestly, like having to edit into that short of a, of an amount of space, I, I feel like allowed me to like express things in a much more concise way than I ever would have had I like not had a daily experience of, of doing that. Um, and I do, I do think that Twitter is, writing, you know, I mean, that that much is obvious, but, you know, I think just like any other form of writing, like you could have somebody who writes a really shitty short story that like nobody likes and that doesn't make any sense and that has no plot and it's still writing, you know, it's still a short story. And I think in the same way, there can be people who are brilliant on Twitter and who are amazing and that's writing. And then there's people who are really bad on Twitter and really annoying and it's, it's still, you know, a form of writing, um, you know, so I think yeah. a lot of people try to put value judgments on like Twitter as a whole, like just the entire platform. But, you know, in reality, it's just a platform. Like you can't say ah, poetry is bad. You know, you can say this poet is bad or this poem is bad, but you can't say like poetry as a whole. It just doesn't count as writing. You know, that's sort of a weird and I, I do feel the same way about Twitter, I think. Is there like a is there a fan on or something? Hello, everyone. This is Belinda Wonkrat. First of all, let me welcome you to Autumn. It's gonna be one of the best ones in history. The pumpkins are twice as big. The cider is twice as spicy. And the hayride is twice as filled with hay. Everybody loves the fall. You get to finally break out those flannel shirts that have been collecting dust in your closets, and it's time to wear a beanie again. But you know who the one person is who doesn't like fall? Actually, did you know that there is one person in America who actually has never even heard of fall? It's Brett Easton Ellis. I know, right? He doesn't know that there is a season between the summer and the winter. Does that sound a little weird to you? Let him know about fall. Send him a couple of seasonal tweets and get his raggedy old ass into the spirit. a little hot it's a little hot i'm sorry um but i think that yeah it it changes the way that people write and it makes people have to like use economy brevity yeah kind of like misdirection differently and i one of my favorite things about twitter was when and and now it's it's sort of a given with the quote retweet format but prior to that um you have to manually rt something to to manually retweet people and it's changed the structure of Mm -hmm. joke writing because you presented the punchline and then the setup was afterwards right and i really loved that and thought it was super funny and like You'd read like there were some people who, you know, in regards to whatever anybody thinks of him, but like for a minute, like Rob Delaney was like king yeah, of the like yeah. 
of the like <laughs> the Twitter burn, you know? And yeah, fully. Quote, retweet, and you would read his like punchline and be like, what is the, and then the setup became the pun. It was really right. interesting. Yeah, like, it did it, sort of like turn the the format on its head or something. Yeah, they were like Jeopardy jokes. Right. Like you had to, you had to answer in the form of a question. Or right, like, right. Like yeah, and it's still kind of like that, but it was interesting with the manual retweets where it, it took up a certain amount of characters, right? So it was like the whole as a whole, it had to still be 140 characters. Like your whole yeah. joke had to be that many. But yeah, yeah, you know, you so had very yeah. limited real estate. Exactly. But also people, <laughs> the best ones were when people would like fake quote retweet like brands, yeah. and people would have a meltdown because someone said that Applebee's said to yeah. fly in to that was like their 9/11 special or something. <laughs> that was like one of the first. <laughs> things I started doing on Twitter that I thought was genuinely funny. Like my friends and I in our yeah. like senior year of high school when I got a Twitter account, like I sort of thought it was stupid, you know, so I would like do things like pretend I was retweeting a, a corporate account that was saying something yeah, yeah. totally insane and I was like, Okay, this is funny, like I can handle yeah, yeah. so then it just sort of like expanded from there. <laughs> and they would get the notification. So mm-hmm. they had to like they had to respond and tell yeah. you that they didn't do it. And it was like so <laughs> like, much smaller back then that they would actually like would respond. Like it was like, yeah. like Applebee's had 20 million followers or whatever. Yeah, it was real easy probably like four to five years ago to get yeah. like, a company to like. Yeah. I remember. And also they also didn't understand like um, like irony poisoning. Yeah, that, right, like an right. entire generation of people were just shitheads. <laughs> to, yeah, like, they everything didn't even they... like know at that time. Like I remember <laughs> like one time being in New York. I was like really hungover and I was in a Chipotle alone eating. And I, I remember tweeting like a depressed in Chipotle or something like that. And then Chipotle, like, responded to me, like, hey, sorry to hear you're having a hard time. Like, which Chipotle are you at? Is there anything you could, we can do? And then I, I ended up just replying to them repeatedly asking for coupons. And they kept telling me that I couldn't – I wasn't allowed to get any coupons. And uh, Oh, my God. It was – they really replied to me for, like, way longer than they should have been. Like, I was obviously yeah. just being an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> I find that JetBlue responds pretty immediately. Um, they're they're pretty good about it. Most airlines will – yeah. Most airlines will respond to you because they think you're going to cause them like a united situation, right? Right. Or like or whatever. Like if they don't, so they try to quell it. Um, yeah. Like since there's been so many issues on airlines, they're like, all right, we really don't want this to happen again. Yeah. Um, <laughs> this isn't really a question, but I feel like you smoke a lot of pot. I do. That's correct. <laughs> <laughs> I do indeed. Is that a is that like a lifelong thing or is that something that you came to sort of later as an adult? Um, I mean, it wasn't. Well, so I think I smoked weed for the first time when I was like 14, maybe something like 13, 14, something like that. Um, And I didn't like immediately start smoking it habitually. It was more like if it was around, I would have it. You know, I weed wasn't legal in California then. So it wasn't like I had, you know, and I was under 18. So I didn't have like access to it, really. Um, But throughout high school, I would like show up to class stones relatively often and and whatnot um and i was did you ever take did you ever take acid and go to class i knew kids who did that and i (laughs) have the deepest respect for a kid who can drop lsd and go to high school you know i was somehow smarter than that i mean i i don't know (laughs) i I think just by chance like i think if someone had offered me lsd to take before class i almost definitely would have said yes um but (laughs) I think just like by chance, I never ended up doing that. I, I was a good student, actually. I had like a point yeah. oh, so I was sort of able to get away with it, I guess. Like, yeah. I, I don't 
I can't hide when I'm stoned. Like it just, mm. even now, like I smoke a lot of weed and still, if I take one hit, like my eyes are bright red and they're half closed <laughs> and like everyone knows. And yeah. so I would show up to class, like in retrospect, obviously stoned, like pretty often. And somehow teachers didn't really get angry at me that much. Cause I yeah. was like, okay, student. So they didn't really I have think to. If as a former high school teacher myself, I oh, will say yeah. that like, I always knew when, the kids were high. Yeah. But if they were, if they were cool, I, right. I didn't care. Like there was no reason to, I would never want to get a kid in trouble anyways. For yeah. That. But like I never like fucked with a kid who showed up high. Right. As long if, as they were like they quiet, were, doing their work and they were like not causing a problem. I don't see why yeah. you it totally makes and, sense. And rarely do stone people cause problems. Yeah. Know? Normally they they're like, quiet. <laughs> like, it doesn't, yeah. Fully. You don't get high and bully somebody. Yeah, right. Like, you don't get uh, suddenly get, like, energy to, like, be an asshole. Like, it's the opposite. I also went uh, to, like, a very weird school where they were very, like, accepting of kids, like, being on drugs, I guess. Like, <laughs> like, I, like I had 30 kids in my graduating class. It was teeny, teeny, tiny. Oh, yeah. I had 500. 500? Holy shit. Yeah. yeah. No, this school was really small. <laughs> Wait, but you're... Was this in Los Angeles? Are you from Los Angeles originally? Oh, but it yeah. was like a like a, a specific school, not like a public school yeah. or something. So I grew up in um, Venice Beach, uh, which is like the west side of Los Angeles. And I went to I've school. I've seen Flaked. Yeah, you know. You know. <laughs> <laughs> that show actually filmed right outside of my house and was like a huge problem for us for a really long time. <laughs> it's such a whack show. I think I told and shit. I think I told you, I already mentioned this in, like, Darcy's Slack channel. Oh, did but you? I think I mentioned that I, like, watch that show, but I can't tell anyone. And I have to, and now I've just <laughs> said it on this that. microphone. Yeah, but now you're outed. Yeah, it's, so, I can't stop watching it, and it's so bad. It's I hate it, and fun. I hate the characters, and I hate the message <laughs> that it sends, and I think it's, like, completely fucked. And yeah. yet I am just, like... I don't know. I'll watch another episode. See what's, <laughs> I but, feel like there's shows that I feel that way about. I watch a lot of like shitty sitcoms, so I get it. I've like I've definitely been there. <laughs> I've anyway, but okay. So the <laughs> wait, the <laughs> high school though was it like an arts high school? Yeah, so it wasn't an arts high school. It was a, a college preparatory school. Um, it Ooh, was it was called for Con indoor kids. Yes, so it was called Concord <laughs> High School. Um, and it was in Santa Monica, which is like just east of venice um but close uh it was in an office building so half of the uh building was like doctor's offices and stuff and then the other half was like our high school um so it was like there wasn't really like a campus it really felt yeah. more mm -hmm. like like when i went to college it felt like how high school felt for me kind of like it was like mm -hmm. you we all like walked to the store for lunch or, you know, we all like there was a corner where everyone went to go smoke cigarettes and the teachers would walk by often and just kind of pretend it wasn't happening. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. And so it, the way that the school worked, uh, well, so the school was closed for embezzling uh, like a few years ago. Um, was, was it a charter school? It was a private school. So it was oh. like, oh, my God, the, the way that the school worked. And at the time, I, I don't know what like. I didn't really understand or maybe I didn't think it was that weird, but basically like there's a, a group of private schools in Santa Monica 
like con- or crossroads, like New Roads, Wildwood. There's a couple of them. And uh, when I was Those in names high school, are fucked. I know it's really fucked. <laughs> when I was in high school, uh, and I, I assume now parents would like send their kids to rehab a lot. Like they would like, oh yeah, 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 yeah. Like they would like discover like they did coke one weekend, mm. and then suddenly they're like in rehab for months. And so a lot mm. of those kids would not be accepted back to their private schools because they missed so much school going to rehab. Um, oh. And so Concord would take those kids for more tuition. <laughs> They would like their their parents would pay like <laughs> yeah it's insane. Their parents would pay like twice tuition, and these kids will get accepted. And then the school it like gets worse. So the school had um, the way the school worked was like in public schools, right? It's illegal yeah. for a teacher to tutor students that they're teaching at school, right? Like outside of school hours or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, like, like you can't drive a kid home. You can't like yeah. yeah. You're not supposed to interact with them. Right. And so if your student needs a tutor, you have to recommend somebody outside of the school to tutor them. Our school did not do that. And our school did let teachers tutor students. And Hmm. um, the teachers would charge exorbitant amounts of money. They would charge like $100 an hour or more. Um, (laughs) During those tutoring sessions, I I kid you not, they would give you the answers to the test. Like, be like, here you go. And just hand you a piece of paper. And then you would like chat with the teacher and like hang out for the rest of the time. And then you have all of the answers to the test. So basically, these kids who would come in, having gone to rehab or something, their parents would pay a ton of money, and then they would pay a ton more money. And those students would get what appeared to be really good grade point averages. And they would Uh get AP classes and all of these different things (gasps) so that they could get (laughs) students like this into like Harvard or, or whatever the fuck schools. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so essentially it was like closed down for that reason. But uh. (laughs) (laughs) the high school that I taught at in um, Phoenix, uh, it was a it was a charter school. And I guess Arizona has pretty like pretty lax like oversight for charter schools. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just like a guy that I used to teach with the other day on like Facebook shared this thing that was about the director of the school who when I was there wasn't like there was a there were there was a man and a woman and they they both were the co-directors but um the woman left at some point and um i guess the guy had taken to he began wearing like a wizard robe Whoa. around the school and Holy he got shit. in he got in a little bit of trouble because a photo went like viral in phoenix of him washing uh, a female student's feet as like a what he said was a gesture of humility, like in one of his what? weird poetry classes, and he oh was like God, touching ew. and washing her feet, and oh. she was really uncomfortable. And then the woman who was the dance teacher when I worked there oh is now she lives at the school, and uh, her husband also lives at the school. And I guess they threw like a a rave to like make money for some reason. And I don't know, it, it's like the craziest, but in that is so insane. <laughs> But all these kids that I (laughs) – all these kids that went to the school, the funny thing was like the people that I taught with were really cool. And they're like kids – I mean I was teaching high school. I was 22. Mm -hmm. Like I had just graduated college. And I was like barely older than these kids. And they were like at house shows in Tempe, Arizona that like my band would play. And I'd see the kids and I was like, what the fuck? Stop I probably thought you were so cool. No. I was like, don't come here. (laughs) Don't come to this party. Um, But – they uh, they have 
the the children have prospered regardless of whether the director's a creep but that's it's really good. cool i i see some of the kids in like art shows here in new york which that's is really sweet. rad like a kid that was my student who like has an art career in new york that's really amazing neat. yeah i went to a lot of like weirdo schools here and i do sort of feel like it was uh, like a good formative experience for me to have that like weirdo strange experience growing up in various schools yeah even if it was like kind of like actually fucked up um to get back to your writing i was curious to know whose writing um you would like your own to sort of be seen in conversation with like whether it's peers or people before you but who do you get a lot out of reading and and who do you really want to be like this is i'm in this pocket with these people i mean so i can i can name a lot of people who i really admire and who I feel like have influenced my writing a lot. But I guess like my base level insecurity stops me from being like, I should be spoken of alongside these people. Even if I feel like my (laughs) writing is like, I I feel like they're all better than me. And I'm like, I shouldn't really be like talked about alongside those people, but like it is what inspired my writing. I I feel like asking. That's funny. Cause if you ask an artist that they don't respond that way. Really? Like a visual Oh, artist? no. They'll be like, yeah, they're like, they're real insecure until you ask them who their work is in conversation with. And it's probably a shitty question that I asked you and because I come from art. <laughs> but I was just like, oh, Mira will say like the people that her work is in conversation with. But writers are generally uh, more humble than visual yeah. artists, I mean, which I is think always like, nice. I think in like almost an issue in my life where like I'm uh, too humble, you know, like I can't like, uh, like I'll be like, having a reading and someone's like, Oh, can I buy a book? And I'm like, why would you want to buy it? Like, just have it. What do you do? Like, don't spend money on it. Like what's wrong with it? And it's like, of course they should be buying the book. That's the whole fucking point. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. and like, I probably should be able to say like, well, my writing should be in conversation with X, Y, and Z because that's like what makes you seem, you know, official. Um, but I, I, I can't help but feel like, like shitty being like, Oh yeah. Like, Lori Moore and I, like, we're on the same level totally because, like, I don't, I don't view us as on the same level, like, in any way. And yet her writing did inspire my writing a lot. Um, yeah. Well, what about folks that, what about folks that you maybe are friends with that you <clears throat> enjoy being sort of in a, in a circle of writing that includes them maybe yeah. as opposed to, like. Yeah, that I can, that I think I can answer. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think, like. You know, like Eileen Miles um, was a big inspiration yeah. for me, and I, I often feel like uh, our work can go hand in hand in a lot of ways. Although, again, that feels like intimidating to say because I do feel like Eileen Miles is so accomplished and amazing. Um, I also feel like Tao Lin uh, often, like our my writing was very inspired by his writing, and we've been friends for a long time, bouncing ideas off of each other. And so, I do feel like our writing sort of uh, is in the same category. I mean, you know, I, I came up in this sort of alt-lit uh, genre yeah, yeah. Uh, of stuff. And I think there's a lot of, like, garbage in that genre, but there's also a lot of really great stuff. Um, well, there there were a lot of, in hindsight, probably, like, very disingenuous people who were involved in it. Yeah. I think what turned me on to it when I first kind of caught wind of it, I want to say, like, around 2012 or 2013. Yeah. And I, and I, and I didn't have friends who were participating in it, but it was just this weird massive things on like tumblr and facebook and other yeah, places sure. i was just excited that it was like oh this is just a this is just a diy publishing scene yeah of people right. who are like if you don't take us seriously like fuck you you're old 
exactly we'll do it yeah. ourselves and right that and that is what was really so appealing cool. to me about yeah. the whole scene was like you were allowed to be a weirdo and you didn't have to necessarily get permission from these established white male old guy publishing houses to yeah. you know have success within this scene there was like we uh you know there were structures that we had all created for ourselves to sort of um you know place value on different pieces of art and there were people who were more popular or less popular in the scene and none of it was based on you know money or you know big five publishing houses or, or anything like that and that was really cool and that i think more than anything you know it like you said it felt like a diy scene like the same way that a diy music scene does involve a lot of art and does you know have people who will leave the diy scene and have other success but first and foremost it's like a community of people who like the same things and who get along and who sort of you know have the same tastes i guess in a way and through that yeah, yeah. a lot of interesting styles and a lot of interesting writing was developed and it sort of showed me poetry in a way that i had never seen it specifically um in that it didn't you know poetry is so uh, can be so academic and exclusionary for people who, you know, maybe couldn't afford to go to college or maybe they could, sure. didn't go or anything like that. I think that oftentimes it's like you have to know about poetry and you have to be able to analyze it in order to, you know, enjoy poetry. And what I liked about the outlet scene was that it took poetry, which was this sort of, or which is this sort of very easy to get into format. You know, it's short. You don't have to like read a, a whole book. You don't have to you know, whatever it's, it's, uh, easy to read just physically, um, yeah. to take that format and to do something that is for a younger, larger audience. And that doesn't exclude people, you know, based on their intellectual abilities necessarily, you know, if you wanted to sure. examine outlet poetry in a more intellectual way, you could, and that was welcomed. But if you just thought it was sort of funny on a surface level, that was equally welcomed. And to me, that was, you know, I don't think I would have gotten into writing were it not for that. Yeah, it was it was a it was an interesting thing because it kind of I remember when I came to it and one of the first things that it shook me out of was this sort of like bullshit preconception that I had about something as simple as grammar. You know, yeah, right, like, totally. which I which it forced me to confront as like, oh, I have a real I have a real fucking classist view of grammar like a really privileged yeah, view of totally. like whatever and that's extremely messed up of me it but yeah. it never like but i it, never it, thought it, of it that way and then totally. i started reading this and i was like oh anybody can write this and it's like okay and it's blah blah and it's clearly communication and who gives a shit if they're using an oxford comma or something like right I know what the person is saying. Exactly. And it, that's what was so, yeah, that was what was so interesting about it to me too, because I, you know, have always loved reading and I, I, you know, don't know where I would be without reading, um, and writing. And, uh, you know, I never like, I never got an MFA. I never got a BA. I never, I dropped out of college. I didn't, I couldn't afford it. And so to me, it was like, you know, I, I, without that scene happening at the time that it did, I wouldn't have been able to break in anywhere because I didn't have any, you know, I, right. Yeah. I, I was lucky enough that in high school I did have an English teacher who was extremely strict with grammar and was very like, like you're <laughs> saying, like exclusionary yeah, yeah. and crazy and whatever. <clears throat> and it did teach me how to write, um, you know, like just how to write, like it taught me sentence structure and, and grammar and all that stuff. And I'm sure. really thankful for that. But 
I think leaving high school, I had this bad taste in my mouth about writing because I was like, mm-hmm. I, I don't want to be like a dick. Like I don't want, like I love reading yeah, yeah. writing and I don't want to like tell people that they don't get to have it just because they like don't know X or Y thing or because they like didn't write something correctly or whatever. Like I don't want like writing that is potentially writing that I love to be like excluded from the canon just because somebody doesn't have a certain kind of education. And that was something that didn't even like occur to me until I saw the alt lit scene and what yeah. doing with it. And sometimes not even right. Like not even education, but just like a, a general, like, well, fuck you. I don't have yeah. to, I mean, I don't have to write in this hegemonic kind right. of, even people who, frankly, like patriarchal yeah, way, totally. way of writing. Exactly. Um, like even people who were educated in that scene were specifically writing in a way that upset traditional publishing. And that yeah. was the point of it. I think actually now that we're talking about this, I think the only reason that it ever bothered me if somebody didn't use correct grammar was because I, I got screamed at in Catholic school right. for not using correct grammar. And I clearly have like embedded that in myself. And yes. the in the release of that was me very too. freeing. Yeah, I it's felt really freeing. Fun. Yeah, totally. Especially once you like, I think that's another thing about Twitter that's really fascinating is you just have to like, you really have to get creative with how you like, plug language in yeah. and changing things around and you, you have cannot to, like, speak. let go like yeah yeah <laughs> yeah like I, I remember like growing up even like on like AOL instant messenger or whatever when uh-huh. I would like type things to people I remember thinking like I was really cool because I would like type out the word your instead of saying like you are right and stuff yeah, like yeah, that yeah, yeah. like I would like I do that I still punctuation. text <laughs> I still do it too you know but I text I'm, like that I get yeah. made fun of all the time because I text like I text like you're writing a letter to right. your boss or something <laughs> Which can get me into trouble too, because then it's really clear if I'm drunk. Right, right, right. Yeah, because it's like sudden, not anymore. All of, all of a sudden, I'm like, yeah, it's like the letters U and R. Yeah. Instead of like, yeah. <laughs> that's good. That's like a, a good tell, though, for people who know you. At least they can be like, okay, he's drunk mm-hmm. right now. Like, I get it. Yeah. That's fine. Like, like, don't. I feel like just... I always type like I'm drunk. <laughs> we interrupt your regularly scheduled program for an important breaking story from action news one new york sources have come forward this morning alleging that brett easton ellis author of the books american psycho less than zero and the rules of attraction has never heard of the season known as fall according to one person who anonymously contacted action news one if someone asks ellis to name the seasons throughout the year he will respond spring summer winter he is an adult man who does not know what autumn is. Reportedly, he thinks that the famous restaurant known as the Four Seasons is participating in an ironic wink and nod. This story is still unfolding by the hour, and we'll keep you updated as more details make themselves clear. In the meantime, Action News 1 New York is asking that all listeners please tweet at Brett Easton Ellis explaining to him that we are currently in the fall season. Let him know that there are four seasons. He will thank you. Um, and then I, I I wanted to ask too in the I referenced uh, the interview that you did with Creative Independent earlier. In in at the beginning of it, you wrote sort of a a longer intro that I thought was really fascinating and great. And I would encourage people to read it. And I will link to it when I post this. But um, one of the things that I really thought was great about it was that you sort of confronted this idea of your writing being lumped in with a preconceived notion of what 
like it means to be a woman on Twitter who's sad in this kind of yeah. like reductive way that people talk about it. And I mean, I guess I've always thought this, but until you sort of articulated it and I really thought it over, I was like, well, what the fuck? That's like literally what every male comedian that I've ever met mm-hmm. has like built their entire yeah. thing on. Yeah. I mean, like being, yeah. Right. It's, and it's sexism. I just like straight oh, blatantly. up yeah, <laughs> like blatant like, very, sexism. <laughs> very, very blatantly. Yes. Yeah. Um, but I, a... yeah, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, like, I'm sure that's extremely frustrating and I'm not trying to like barb you and make you talk about it. But I think I think reading that for me was you put language to a thing that I recognized as happening, but didn't previously see somebody like just sort of say plainly, like, yeah, this is fucked up. Don't lump us all in because we are allowed because we have a spectrum of emotions. Right. You know? Well, and it's, or I think in, you likened it to calling women hysterical. In yeah, like the 19th exactly. I think right? it does really harken back to to that, and you know, to a, like everything about our culture doesn't listen to women, doesn't believe women, and you know, disregards women. And obviously, specifically women of color more than white women or more than white passing women. That's like a huge problem. Um, but being a female writer, I've always always felt. Um, and other female writers that I know have, have felt us being, you know, lumped into a category, like you said, of like women who write about being depressed or like women who write about being sad. And then, yeah, you see someone like Charles Bukowski, who literally just complains for <laughs> yeah, hundreds no of pages over yeah, and over yeah, again. He's yeah, like, yeah. oh, like I got my dick sucked, but I'm still sad uh, and empty inside. Or like yeah, someone yeah, like Freddie yeah. Stanellis, who like writes a fucking scene about a 12 year old getting raped. And then the whole yeah. scene is about like his own inner, like, Oh, but like, I'm so sad and empty. I don't even care that this girl's getting raped. And it's like, then we're yeah. the ones who are called like emotional yeah, yeah, yeah. or something. Yeah. It's like, they're like either a being insanely over emotional about things that they don't need to be overly emotional about, or they're having no emotions in the face of something where they should have emotions. And neither of those things are, are commendable, but you know, it's, it's a book. And if you enjoy the book and you enjoy the book and so fine, but for some reason being, you know, a woman who writes about her own life, your own story, you're immediately disregarded. You know, female stories are inherently less valuable in the culture than male stories. And they're inherently viewed as something that is frivolous, you know, the same way that women talking to other women is vilified as gossip, the same way that, you know, anything that women do is, is never quite right. Um, and I, I think that like, this specifically is just so blatant because it's like 99% of people who write are going to write about being sad or depressed or like whatever. They're going to be writing yeah, yeah. about hard times in their life. And so to, you know, pick out an entire large group of female writers who all write very differently and say, oh, well, you're all just sad girls. It's it's the same thing that people did with alt lit where they would say, yeah. you know, oh, well, you're just an alt lit writer who cares. When in reality, like that was a large group of very different writers with different styles who happened to come together under the umbrella of wanting to deny traditional publishing. Um, yeah. You know, well, I- and it makes it makes me think, too, of how often specifically men are celebrated for um talking about mental illness mm-hmm. um versus like I, I as you were speaking i was trying to conjure some idea in the literally the only woman that i can think of who i've seen publicly sort of like admired for talking about mental illness is maria bamford yeah 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 definitely but i can think of dozens of men 
Like, yeah, yeah. And, and these aren't, and I don't have a criticism of these men. Like, I'm glad that they're yeah, doing, I have a criticism of the system, health. but like, but like, I think it's, you know, it's obviously great that Chris Gethard talks about this or like yeah. somebody like Andrew WK or yeah, whatever, totally. but like, but the supremely fucked double standard mm-hmm. is crazy. Well, and you like, know, it's like the same cultural phenomenon that makes, you know, doctors not believe women when they're sick, right? You come in and you yeah. say, I'm in pain and everything is terrible. And they're like, mm, no, you're just like depressed. And it's, oh, I literally have my fiance come with me to the doctor's office now because so many doctors have not believed me about things just because I like have tattoos and am a girl oh, or whatever God, the fuck. Yeah. And it's like, it's the same thing, you know, to say that like women can't write about mental health issues without being hysterical or without being over the top or victimizing themselves is just another way to disregard the experiences of women as inherently without value. Yeah, I guess I, I mean, I think of, I don't think of sad girl Twitter as a thing. I think of sad Twitter as a thing. Yeah, right. And exactly. I, and I and it like it and, and participate in it. Yeah, like sometimes, we all do. <laughs> sometimes I, you know, um, for the last couple of years, I've been in maybe like a better place. And so I haven't participated right. in as much of like, sad night Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, there's certainly, uh, it would be insane of me to ever think like, oh, there's this genre of women that uh, that are sad when it's like, yeah. oh my God, have you downloaded my Twitter archive? Yeah. I would, <laughs> I'm a, I'm, no, it's like I'm, you... a f- I'm a fucking sad boy. Like this. <laughs> and it's like so, so many people are, you know, like if you were to yeah, say yeah. like, nobody's allowed to to talk about mental illness in a humorous light and we would have no comedy we would have no books yeah, we would have no anything yeah. it's like pointless and i mean i don't know if you follow um my friend andrew mcginty her she's at life creep oh yeah um, really great. really lovely i love andrew but i did the first interview that i did for humor in the abject was like a, a text interview with her and she was just sort of talking about this like behavior on twitter where it's like it's a little bit of a release and everybody feels like they can be sad because if you post it on Facebook, I'm going to kill myself. Yeah. People are Your like, aunt, oh, I'm going to call the Everyone police. be like, oh, my fucking God, like yeah. I'm coming over. And if you post it on Twitter, you get like rewarded. Right. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like we obviously have to be careful about if, sure. you know, someone really is going to kill themselves. Like we need to take that Absolutely. seriously. And that's but I think, But like, obviously, there's a... a an easy to distinguish line between yeah, yeah, yeah. humor and between a serious mental health emergency. Sure. Well, I think most of us who have kind of learned to process uh, mental illness, like depression or, or trauma or people who have eating disorders or like a million other things, the people who've kind of come to a place where uh, they can make light of it, you would know if that person weren't making light of it. Yes. Right. Like you yeah. said, like that, they're br- like I hate to use the word their brand, but you could tell <laughs> you could tell if they were being off brand. Yeah, you know what I mean. And sometimes I see that with friends on Twitter who also are very self deprecating. But I'll like, you know, you have to send a DM and just be like, "Are you cool?" Yeah, like, like you, are you can okay? tell, right? And like, yeah. I remember just like I was talking to Tyler about my therapist, uh, who I love and who's like a great therapist, and oftentimes all you know, be telling her a story about how like my family's insane or someone did this or that thing. And sometimes it's a really sad story and it's a really like shitty story Uh and she'll laugh. And like, I was telling that to my fiance and he was like, well, like your therapist shouldn't, you know, necessarily be laughing. Like, that's not good. And I was like, no, but it is good because like, that's what I do. And she can, she's a good enough therapist that she sensed that when I'm describing things like this, my immediate, you know, thing that I do is kind of 
turn it into humor, which is not, yeah, 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 and yeah. it's not like we've talked about it. It's just like, it's just your way of speaking about things and your way of reframing the past is something that you have more control over. And so when she reacts in that way, I, I immediately feel better. I'm like, okay, like I understand that this sure. is like a shitty situation. We're both like, well, you know, you laugh or you cry and it's good. It's helped me a lot. Yeah. And I think in the, I mean, in, in the response of a person who laughs, who, who you have an intimate relationship with, you know what I mean? Like, I'm sure that Tyler would also like know when it was appropriate to laugh when you were talking about something, but that's the same. Um, and I just talked about this with, uh, a a couple episodes ago with my buddy Pastiche Lumumba, who makes these like sometimes like really gnarly memes, um, and about how it's the same physical response as, as like terror or like a gasp or like Like you, it's just, if you know the person and you pick up on their kind of like their, like the color of their aura, you know, when to laugh versus when to. And it doesn't (laughs) take much, you know, like you can kind of tell with somebody like, or at least I can like pretty quickly if they're like making light of a situation that's shitty or if they're talking about a shitty situation in a way where it's not funny and you can't be funny about it. Um, but even those situations, given enough time, become situations where you can be funny about it. You know, if you're, if, you know, that's the kind of person that you are. A lot of people don't use humor to cope with difficult situations. And that's fine, too, you know. But you can yeah. you can tell when somebody is using humor to cope with a bad situation. And I don't think that makes mental illness, like, worse for anybody reading it who doesn't cope with that situation via humor. Sure. Yeah, yeah. No, I've had to my fair share of time sort of like explain to somebody that I'm not um, like I'm not joking about mental illness. Right. Like I I, it's not a I don't think it's funny to be depressed or to have or to ideate suicide. Right. Because I've had both of those things for a long time. Totally. Yeah. And it's uh, like if it's you've a, experienced that, you get a, a pass to talk about it however you want to talk about it because it's your own experience. You know, you're not like prescribing yeah, if, something to anyone else. Yeah, especially if you're still here, right? Because right. people like, and that's admirable. Yeah. And it's the same thing with writing or making art or doing comedy. And when you see somebody like, whatever their coping mechanism is, if it's not enacting any violence on anybody yeah. else, then like, hell yeah. Right, Good if it's them. not an unhealthy you know? coping mechanism, then like, great you know they're getting over their depression it's everybody is different in their mental illness even if it's the same mental illness and like the same way that somebody could say like i don't want you to make jokes about my depression somebody could say i do want you to make jokes about my depression and it just depends on the individual i don't know why people like go around twitter trying to like prescribe ways of talking about depression to like everyone who's depressed like it doesn't make any (laughs) sense (laughs) the weird thing is the vast i mean and i I don't mean to make a blanket statement at all because this is not a a real uh, – this is not a scientific study. But I feel like the majority of people that I've met in my life who have been open about having any mental illness or depression are often really fucking funny. Yeah, totally. Like they're, <laughs> they're – Definitely. Like, <laughs> I mean I think because, there's something about struggling that you know can make a person really hilarious. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Like I've never met a like – well, maybe yeah, – but not too many. But like – an extremely attractive person who grew up of means who also went to all the right schools <laughs> and has like a job where they're pulling down like six figures who's like just genuinely hilarious. Yeah, right. Like, no, it's, totally. It's, like, those are very few and far between. But Because like comedy is a coping mechanism that people develop yeah. over time. Like I know that I 
developed like my sense of humor as sort of a reaction to feeling really insecure about the way that I looked or insecure about, you know, a a large variety of things as a girl growing up like you would be. And so you sort of learn where your currency is, you know, where you can sort of Mm -hmm. have social currency. You can sort of be, you know, there's people who are really attractive and they're able to sort of go throughout their social life being extremely attractive. And that's, you know, they can be funny too, but the attractiveness is enough to sort of get them through and to sort of make everything okay. Versus, you know, somebody who is like I was deeply insecure about themselves, you know, you can sort of develop a sense of security through humor. You know, I, I, you know, it's like, I may not be pretty. I may not be thin enough. I might not like read enough. I might not do blah, blah, blah. But I know that if I'm having a conversation with someone, I can be funny. And that's enough to make somebody like you, you know, that. And also like, I feel like that was a way that I um, I got out of a lot of like uh, undeserved ass kickings yeah, in right. like, middle school. Like, cause you know, like yeah. I'm I'm still I'm not a big dude. I'm pretty little, <laughs> and I was real fucking little when I was yeah. like eleven or twelve. And I learned very quickly that if you can talk a conversation into some weird fucking thing where like a dude's buddies start laughing because you said something funny, he's probably not going to pummel you into the lockers. And I think (laughs) like with girls, it's like, uh, you know, it's almost like, okay, as a group of girls, nobody's ever going to beat anybody up. And so you sort of develop this way of, of fighting with words that is Uh so much more horrifying. I think that maybe even getting beaten up. Yeah. Like my sister got legit busted with a burn book way before mean girls came out when we were kids. She had a burn book and it (laughs) was fucking crazy. Mean. Jesus. Yeah. They're like, (laughs) she's like the nicest person though. Yeah. But it's like when you're that young, so nice, but it's like you're growing up. You don't know like what's, what's going on, what's good in the world. And there are these girls (laughs) and it's like either you're mean with them or like, they're going to kill you. Like you're yeah, yeah, die. Yeah. and it's like, all right, well, I guess I have to be mean then. <laughs> like they're like to this day, I feel like I'm terrified of like, I guess like growing up now, I, I also have a, a feeling of respect for really difficult, like tough, mean women. I'm like, okay, yeah, no, I kind yeah. of like love you. And that's good. Cause being an adult, it's sort of different. But as a, as a young kid, it was like, I was terrified. I was horrifying. I remember like going into my teen years and being like, I'm just going to be friends with boys now because girls are too scary. And then like that sucked really bad too, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, <laughs> like, yeah. it, cause boys don't like, they can't communicate the way the girls communicate with each other. They're all fucked up. No, they also, res- they're fucking nihilists. Yeah. They respect totally. nothing. Yeah. They, they respect no- nothing. <laughs> <laughs> they have no values, no morals. <laughs> um well uh so what um do you have anything coming up that listeners should check out or keep an eye out for Hmm. well i don't know when this podcast is coming out i have a reading tomorrow so that oh it will come out sunday night sunday night for my la listeners when you listen to this you (laughs) fucked up if you didn't go to mirror's reading (laughs) fucked up so bad it was so amazing um let's see do i have i mean follow me on twitter that's always a yes good at miragons um you can buy my books on amazon that's also good i have a couple of things coming out at the believer magazine so keep an eye out for that um cool i think that's about it nice um well mira thank you so much for spending some time with me today and talking about such a variety of things uh it was wonderful to have you yeah it's my pleasure yeah and to uh everybody who's listening thank you so much once again this is episode number 20 which is kind of a lot i didn't that's a lot of episodes um 
And, uh, you know, we'll see you next week. 